Oz Guinness tells a story in his book called The Call. There was a young woman who was 18 years old with two small children and evidently talented and beautiful. But she was also orphaned, penniless, and completely alone and away from her home. She was a recent widow. Her husband had died in a duel that had rocked the country she was living in, Ireland. Her name was Jane Destare, and she could be forgiven for her dark thoughts one day when she wandered out to a riverbed. She pondered the waters below. Pain ran through every fiber of her being, and despair filled her horizon. Death beckoned her. The year was 1815, the time of Wellington's victory over Napoleon at Waterloo. Dueling was still legal in England and Ireland, though it was frowned upon. But none of that mattered to Jane at that moment. She gazed into the water below. Friends, you and I know that now, even in 2022, life is fragile. It's often troubling, and pain is unavoidable. Some of you, as I look out, I can tell are older than me, and I don't presume to know your pain this morning, but the Bible is a book that speaks to our pain, and this psalm does so. Joni Erickson Tata says this about the Psalms. They wrap nouns and verbs around our pain better than any other book. And David, who wrote this psalm, helps us to see that the life of the Christian, the saint, is a road filled with suffering. The main takeaway today, or the main point of the message today, is that what all suffering saints need to know, or what all suffering saints need to hear, And I want to look at three things that will encourage us from this psalm. If you look at Psalm 34 with me, you'll notice you can break it down into two parts. Uh, Verses 1 to 10, David gives his testimony. And in the subtitle, you can see there's a backstory to his testimony. That is that he was saved from an enemy king. And then in verses 11 to 22, you get the instruction that comes uh, from his testimony. So three points on suffering, and again, uh, if you know the Bible and you've been Christian a long time, I'm not saying anything new today to you, but we all need reminders, and today's message is a reminder that God delivers, he delivers us, he delivers all those who suffer. So firstly then, verses 1 to 3, those who suffer need to know God saves. Those who suffer need to hear of God's deliverance. The afflicted... The humble, in verse 2, they need, firstly, the songs of brothers and sisters. The songs, as we've sung this morning, that's blessed my heart, we need that. Those who are afflicted need to hear the name of the Lord sung. So we worship together. Verse 1 and following, you see, I bless the Lord at all times, which we can quickly read over, especially when we're young and healthy. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will make my boast in the Lord. Let the humble or downtrodden or afflicted hear. Verse 2 calls us to hear and be glad. Verse 3, magnify the Lord with me. In other words, let us now sing and worship our God together. The blessing of coming together Sundays In part, we feel like maybe if you've gone to church a long time, you do the same old things. And yet, 
those same old things are precious. We sing in community. Now, I teach uh, high school here in Toronto at, at PCA. Some of you are familiar with that. And the kids asked me the other day if I was a Swifty. And I, I didn't know what that meant, but apparently that's what you call Taylor Swift fans. Um, you know that to be human really is to sing, right? It's just part of who we are. And Taylor Swift broke all these records, and her music connects with people. That's what music does. There's a soccer game actually going on with our country. Uh, I don't know if soon, maybe now. Canada's playing Croatia. And at that game, the national anthem will be sung. And the emotion, I've watched a few games of the players as they hear their national anthem sung. You can see it in their eyes. They've been singing these songs their whole life. It connects. We as people have music for every occasion and a style for it. We sing songs about saying hello, and we sing songs about saying goodbye. That is the gift that God has given humanity, but how much more is it a gift for our church, for his church, for us? The Old Testament is filled with songs. As a matter of fact, the first song in the Bible is recorded in Exodus as a response to God's salvation from their enemy Egypt. The New Testament is filled with songs, and our church history is filled with songs. We have a treasure chest to sing from, and many of those songs are unique for those who suffer, the minor key songs. What people suffering really need is to hear, even if you're not suffering this morning, your voice. Sometimes it's too hard to sing. And being present in a community like this is a healing moment, something unique about music. I have a friend who lost a loved one a few years ago. He lost a son, and he was asked in an interview, uh, what changed? What, how did that loss change his life? And one of the things he said that struck me in that interview was he said this. He said, I now cry in church when we sing. And uh, Kleenex boxes should be welcome in our church services. And if misery loves company, you're in good company. We are a people who we need to hear the worship of God, whether we feel it or not, whether we want to or not. It's not fake to come in and sing these songs if you're not feeling it. This is helping brothers and sisters who are struggling. Well, one of the great old hymns uh, that we sing here at our church, and you probably know, is It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. That song was penned through loss and tears and has blessed thousands and continues to bless so let us sing as we have. What a blessing to sing this morning. Let us continue to see the great preciousness of singing together in community. Well, why is David singing? Verses 4 to 10, those who suffer also need to hear that God saves through testimony. They need to hear a recounting that God does deliver. Those who are suffering need to hear God saves and brings relief, even if you're not feeling that. We need to see the God of grace. And David now explains the reason to sing with the testimony of his experience of God's saving grace. David says, let me tell you why I sing in verses 4 and 7. I sought the Lord. I, I looked for the Lord. 
and I prayed, I called out to him, and he heard me. And he didn't just hear me, he delivered me. Verse 4. And he had an experience from this deliverance, verse 5. You can see there, he says, Those who look to him are radiant, they are enlightened, they have joy. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, this humble man, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That little word, all there, is a word that ties the whole poem together. We bless the Lord at all times because he delivers us from all fears. Verse 6. In verse 4, all troubles. Verse 19, and at the end, from all affliction. That is the God of the Bible. Well, the backdrop for this in the title there, we know exactly when David wrote this. This is his salvation experience. When he changed his taste, changed his behavior, changed his taste before Ambibalak, before a Philistine king that was an enemy. And that story is in 1 Samuel 21. If you look at 1 Samuel 21 and the, and the chapters around it, David had spent four years on the run and suffering. His life was in turmoil, and Saul was trying to kill him. So David, after getting comfort from Jonathan, he runs off, and he's basically by himself, and he's got nothing. And he goes to a priest, and he's starving, and the priest lets him eat the showbread. Then he asks if there's any weapons there, because he doesn't have one, and he gets Goliath's spear. Okay, so he takes Goliath's spear, and he heads off into Philistine to seek refuge in an enemy king because he thinks, well, Saul hates me. He's probably got the word around. Maybe I can find refuge here. Dale Ralph Davis comments on this. I love this. He says, this is the equivalent of a steer walking into a meat processing plant. <laughs> David has Goliath's spear, and he's going to Goliath's hometown for help. And he immediately realizes in 2 Samuel that he's in trouble. When they say, this is David, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David, it says he took it to heart and he was now really scared. And what David decided to do was act insane. So he starts to let drool run down his beard. He starts clawing at the gate and just acting like a lunatic. And the king says, I have enough of these lunatics around. I don't need him. And David gets away. He gets away and then he goes off to a cave and he's surrounded by a bunch of uh, discontented, um, illegal immigrants, if I can put it that way, distressed people, and that's not the type of person, people you would think would be a comfort in that situation. David finds rest in that company. Well, David, he sees this differently than what we're told in Samuel 21. He doesn't see this as some wise act. He sees this as God's saving grace. And so he writes, taste and see, verse 8, that the Lord is good. I changed my taste, and behind all of that was God's goodness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, remember Jane Destare was at the moment of taking her life. Well, for some reason, as she looked into the water, she decided to look up. And what she saw was a plowman uh, doing work in a field. She saw a, a man, a farmer, plowing his field uh, by the bank of the river. And he was about her age, and she was just struck by how meticulous and absorbed and skilled this man was in doing his work. And her mind just slowly got drawn into this. 
and it got off of herself, and uh, she all of a sudden realized that she was collapsing in self-pity. And she, how could she do this, she thought, with her two small children and leave them without a mother? So rather than taking her life that day, she, she got down, she rebuked herself, she braced for hard life, she got up and she went back to Dublin. A few weeks later, after that brush with death, she came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And she's actually the great-great-grandmother uh, of Oz Guinness himself. Guinness writes this story to show us that God's goodness and grace is in every piece of our lives, far beyond what we realize. And what a testimony to God's goodness, isn't it, in our own lives? Do you remember the first time that you tasted that Jesus was good? Do you remember that? Or where are you at? Uh, There's an old story that uh, Baptist preachers like to tell. I think it's fitting to tell here. Um, Many years ago, in the University of Chicago, they would have a day when they'd get a big speaker to come with a big name and talk on a topic. Well, that year, they got a man named Paul Tillich to come, who was a pretty famous liberal scholar, i.e. he didn't believe the gospel. And he spoke for two hours at length on how the resurrection of Jesus wasn't true. And so uh, these pastors were listening to this on and on and on and on. And when he finished uh, saying things like, this is Christianity is just a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo, an emotional appeal to weak people, he got finished and he, he then opened it up to questions, which is always dangerous to do with a group of pastors. Well, one, one such elder pastor with gray hair got up after about a minute and uh, he, he said, Dr. Tillich, I have one question. And everyone in the room looked to him. He reached into a sack for his lunch lunch sack, and he pulled out an apple. And he began to eat the apple as he was asking a question to Dr. Tillich. So he said, Dr. Tillich, crunch, crunch, munch, munch. He was taking his time here. My question is simple. Crunch, crunch, munch, munch. I ain't ever read no uh, books from German scholars. Crunch, crunch, munch, munch. I have never read the Bible in the original language, crunch, crunch, munch, munch, and I don't know anything about this stuff you're talking about, and then he just finished his apple. (laughs) Put the apple core in the bag and said, all I want to know is this. This is simple. This apple that I just ate, was it bitter or was it sweet? Of course, Dr. Tillich, uh, like many academics, was thinking hard about this question, he said, I cannot possibly answer that question, for I have not tasted your apple. The preacher then said to him, neither have you tasted my Jesus. And the pastors there broke out in applause. <laughs> and <laughs> but I say to you this morning, have you tasted the Jesus of the Bible, who unlike David, who didn't know what to do and started acting insane, was silent before Pilate went to Calvary, died in our place, so that all of our fears and all of our afflictions and all of our troubles would be taken care of, keeping us from hell, keeping us from the Father's wrath, giving us the Holy Spirit so that we can call God Father. Have you tasted? David breaks out into preaching here. He can't help himself. Oh, taste and see. This is for us, that the Lord is good. And Oh, fear the Lord. You see, the 
The psalm itself is a progression of how faith works. We cry out for help and we're saved, and then we fear the Lord. The young lion suffers want, verse 10. The big, strong bucks of our culture that have everything they want, the lion is at the top of the food chain. It can basically do what it wants. David says, you know what, even it gets tired and hungry, but those who trust in the Lord, those who have tasted that Jesus is good, they shall lack no good thing. Verse 10, no good thing. Well, those who suffer need to hear testimonies. They need to hear songs. And next, secondly, those who suffer need to know God's way for us. Saints need to understand that there is a way with the Lord, and that way often needs reinforced. We naturally don't go from this experience that David had to the next verses. David says you can not only fear the Lord after you've tasted knowing he's good, you can actually be taught the fear of the Lord. And so he now goes into instruction, verses 11, 12, and 13, and 14, and he's going to teach about the fear of the Lord. But the motivation is love, isn't it? Many years ago on our honeymoon, my wife asked a total stranger in a foreign country to take our picture on this bridge because she loves pictures and she's not afraid to talk to strangers. They didn't speak English. Uh, Well, maybe some of them did. And my first reaction was, I'm embarrassed. Why are you asking them to do this? And I have learned since that my wife loves taking pictures still. And what I had to do because I love my wife is I had to um, change. Uh, But I had to, because I love her... (laughs) because I love her I was willing to do that but you know what that wasn't easy it wasn't like the next week I woke up and loved taking pictures I still to this I'm telling you this because I still have to remind myself my wife loves taking pictures and we need to book Christmas pictures and because she loves it the fear the fear of the Lord the, the fear of the Lord in this passage, it works that way. We, we, we love Jesus, therefore we want to follow him and do what he says. The motivation is love. And I love how this psalm, it, it comes at it that way. Because you can love someone and you can still need reminders to do what you're supposed to do. So, and now the teaching comes. Come, O children, listen to me. Now he's going to teach us that you can learn the fear of the Lord. Now, this is not rocket science for Christians to hear these verses. And as a matter of fact, 1 Peter's letter is built on this psalm, I think. You can look at that later for homework. Uh, teachers like to say those things. You have homework. You don't. But if you look at 1 Peter, you'll see that he quotes, taste and see the Lord is good, reminding the people of, of who they are in Jesus. And then he goes on to tell them now how to behave because of that. And he quotes from these verses. So if you want a good life, verse 12 and you want to see this God where you will lack no good thing, here's what you need to do. Verse 13 and 14. You need to keep your tongue from evil, so tell the truth. Okay, don't tell lies. And verse 14, you need to turn from evil and do good. You actually need to seek peace and pursue it in those relationships, especially in your own life. I have them where it's hard to keep peace, but we are to make an effort to do that because we love Jesus and therefore we can be instructed in this fear, this, this love fear, if I can say it that way, to, to do what he wants us to do. 
Now, I'm speaking better than I know for the rest of the psalm because I have not arrived at this. But verses 15 to 22 take a different turn from what you and I naturally think if you do what you're supposed to do. Okay, so we tell our kids all the time to uh, do things. (laughs) And we tell people things like, do your homework, work hard, tell the truth, say your prayers, save your money, invest your money, get an education. We're really good at that, right? But we're not so good at when that happens, then we need to turn to verses 15 to 22 for help. Because when you tell the truth, it doesn't always go well. And I had to learn this the hard way, and I'm still learning it. But when I was a young boy, and my parents were Christians, and I looked at their life, and I thought to myself, they go to church, they pray, they love us. I've never met a kinder man than my father. Why is their life so hard? Why? Like, why is it so difficult? James MacDonald, who was a great writer that inspired Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, He had a hard life, and he said this about difficulty. Everything difficult in our life indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. Everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. But suffering saints need to know this is the way. This is the way of following Jesus, suffering first and then the glory I'm blessed with, uh, I have a small family, but I'm blessed with a few uncles, one of which his name is Eli, Uncle Eli, Eli Stutzman. He's Amish. He grew up in Pennsylvania without any electricity and the way you see on the TV shows with horses and homemade everything. Um, Those people, of course, don't preach the gospel in their churches, sadly. But they had the Bible in German, and at a certain age, the Holy Spirit used what little he had to, to make him realize that he needed a savior. And uh, Eli got saved and realized he had to leave his community because they were not teaching Jesus, and he was excommunicated. He moved to Canada. He met my, um, my aunt. My grandparents were not happy about this. They got married. They had a great marriage. They have, I have great cousins. But my uncle Eli is a testimony to understanding these things practically. Um, he had a... Uh, a piece of property and a family and kids and a mortgage and all that and he had a job where he was responsible for quality control and uh, one day his boss came to him and said this is a big project and I just need you to rubber stamp it and my uncle who loves Jesus thought well that's not right so he went and looked more into this project and he basically put a red flag on it and his boss said if you don't remove the red flag we're going to fire you And this is where I think, (laughs) we don't often think this way, but fearing the Lord and doing what's right. Well, he did what's right, and he lost his job. But you know, he's in his 80s now, and if you met him, you'd know right away he loves Jesus. God took care of him, and God will take care of us in those moments. I'm learning this, and I need to relearn it, but this is just the way of our life as Christians. David does not say when you fear the Lord, no pain, Seasons, tickets to the Leafs, house given to you in the city of Toronto, healthy children, education, money set aside for them, vacations in Hawaii. That's not what's going on here. And if we listen to the world, and it does influence us, doesn't it? We can be tripped up with what the way of the righteous looks like. 
Well, lastly, let's close with looking at verses 15 and following. Those who suffer need to know this as well. Uh, They not only need to know that saints will suffer, but we need to know the God who suffered. We need to know the God who suffered. If you look at verses 15 to 18, I'm almost hesitant to go through them because they're such precious verses. Like, you just read them and they sink into your heart. Verse 18 is precious. Are you brokenhearted this morning? It says, the Lord is near and he saves those crushed in spirit. How blessed is that promise. In verses 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. This is not a God like the World Cup where the referee has to go to the thing on the side to see if it was really a penalty. And then the computer says it's a penalty and they get a penalty. Because God sees, right? This is not like me with my kids when they say, Daddy, Daddy, and I'm too busy on my phone. And my one son will just push my face and take my phone away and say, Daddy, look. This is not a God like that. This is, this is a God who sees. This is a God who hears. This is a God who doesn't need any fixes. He knows it all, and he listens. Verse 19 is precious. If you thought I was not, if I'm just, I'm not making any of this up, right? This is God's word. Saints will suffer. Many are the afflictions. Many. Many. We don't like that word. We also don't like the word afflictions. Of the righteous, of the saints, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. We need to see God's disposition to us is one of great care. Sometimes I'm learning as an older father that young children just want to be with you and cry, and if you're there, it makes all the difference, even though you can't explain the crazy thing that just happened because they won't understand it, but you're there. If you know Jesus this morning, you know You might not like it at all. As a matter of fact, you want God to remove it. But you know in those moments he's near because he has revealed himself to us in Jesus. Taste and see that he is good. Well, verse 20, and we'll end with this. You'll notice there's a precious, precious promise. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And what the New Testament does with that verse is it takes it into John 19. If you look at John 19, 36... And John alludes to this and other Old Testament passages to show us that God suffered in Jesus. And so John quotes from this in John 19. And in thinking about Jesus ready to go give his life and die for our sins, this verse is quoted and John says, And the scripture was fulfilled. And so Jesus fulfills the ultimate righteous sufferer of this psalm. In thinking a little more about that hymn, I referenced, and some of you know Horatio Spafford and the story behind it as well. But he was an American lawyer who lost everything in a fire in Chicago in 1871. And um, in light of that, he took a ship. He lost his daughters who were with him on the ship. Uh, In light of that experience, he took another ship. and And when they had come to where that whole sorrow had happened, he was reflecting and he actually wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. And Tim Keller makes this comment thinking about that hymn. He says, Why would a man dealing with the loss of his children and the grief of that horrific event spend an entire song on Jesus and his salvation? Why would he bring up the subject of his own sin when he's reflecting on that loss? 
My sin, oh, the thought of this bliss, of the glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well. Well, what does that have to do with suffering? And it has everything to do with our suffering. Because Jesus is one who walked in our shoes perfectly, suffering and tasting death, and he has the nail prints in his hands to prove it. He knows what suffering's like far beyond us as he suffered in our place. The God who crushed his own son is the God that can be trusted. The God in this psalm that David found to be trustworthy at the end. None of those who look to him will be condemned. This is Romans 8 of the Old Testament. We are not condemned because of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but at times in our life when we suffer, we're tempted to think we've done something wrong and God is punishing us. And we must look to the cross, as Tim Keller reminds us, and we must see Jesus who died in our place because he took all the punishment, he took all the pain, and because he did, we can taste and see that our God is good. I pray that this is a comfort for your soul. We'll just close in prayer.